Section 11 of the End of the Middle Age, 1273 to 1453, by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 Schisms in the Papacy and the Empire, Part 1. Before the close of the 14th century, both papacy and empire were reaching a period of the utmost humiliation. The old order was already giving way, and the coming change was heralded by anarchy and confusion which affected the whole of Europe. In 1378, as has been already seen, the death of Pope Gregory was followed by a double election to the papacy, which led to a forty years' struggle from 1378 to 1417 between rival candidates for the coveted post, a struggle in which political motives had more weight than spiritual considerations, in which the personal character of the popes fell perhaps lower than ever before, and which could not fail to shake the whole organization of the church to its very foundation. The death of the emperor Charles IV, which took place in the same year, did not lead immediately to the schism in the empire. His son, Wenzel, was accepted for the time as his successor, 1378 to 1400. But he was a man totally unfitted to fill so distinguished a post, above all at such a period of difficulty. So great was the imperial degradation under his feeble rule that in 1400 the electors endeavored to depose him and put Rupert, Count Palatine, in his place. Empire, as well as papacy, was thus in the hands of rival candidates, 1400 to 1410. A strong emperor might have had some hope of settling church dissensions. As it was, the papal schism could not be healed from that quarter, and other political events helped to prolong the difficulty. The schism was indeed in many respects a political question. The reluctance of France to lose the influence she had so long exerted over the papacy at Avignon, and the desire of the Italians to have once more a pope of their own nationality established at Rome, soon gave the dispute between rival popes almost the appearance of a struggle between France and Italy. Certainly the attitude taken up by the different powers of Europe toward the question was decided in every case by political motives. Another important factor in the business was the disputed succession in Naples, where the house of Durazzo and the house of Anjou were competing for the throne. Joanna of Naples, it will be remembered, lost her life while resisting the claims of her niece's husband, Charles of Durazzo, and she bequeathed her crown and her quarrel to Louis of Anjou. From the first, the rival popes took up the rival parties. Urban VI, that of Charles, Clement VII, that of Louis. The deaths of these two candidates only changed the persons of the rivals. It did not end the struggle. Ladislas succeeded Charles as King of Naples and exercised a very important influence, not always of a friendly character, over the popes at Rome. The claims of Louis II of Anjou were still upheld by the anti-popes at Avignon. These points are important to remember 
in working out the history of the papal schism. There were, besides, other and more complicated questions involved, and the ambition of the rival candidates was not the only obstacle to the healing of this terrible quarrel in the church. Perhaps had Urban VI been of a more conciliatory disposition, the difficulty might have been averted. When, however, the cardinals found what an extremely unsatisfactory choice they had made, it was easy to urge that the election was invalid because done under compulsion. At the time of the conclave, when Urban was chosen, a howling mob without had not ceased to cry aloud for an Italian pope, a Roman pope, and they had even broken into the palace itself, so that the cardinals with difficulty escaped with their lives. Had the claim of compulsion been made at once, it might have been recognized as valid. The mistake arose from the fact that Urban was accepted without difficulty until his own actions rendered him obnoxious. Not till then did the cardinals make their new choice of Clement VII. Neither of the rival popes had the qualities which would seem desirable for the high position to which they had been raised. They were very different to each other in character, but alike in their firm determination to maintain their rights. Urban VI, 1378-1389, was a man of extreme pride, violence, and obstinacy. He preached poverty to his rich ecclesiastics and commanded that one dish alone should be allowed at their table. Worse than that, he did not attempt to curb his temper, and one cardinal was called a fool, another was told to hold his tongue, he had talked long enough. His policy was chiefly to uphold his cause against all opponents and to exalt his own family. He seems to have had no other aims nor any clear conception of how to support the papal dignity. Antipope Clement VII, 1378-1394, was only thirty-six years of age, tall and commanding in appearance, far more agreeable and conciliatory in manners than his low-born rival, but a warrior rather than a churchman. As papal legate in North Italy, he had headed bands of mercenary soldiers and was stained by the responsibility of a pitiless massacre at Cesena. When war broke out between the two claimants, Clement, driven from Naples by a mob rising, took refuge in Avignon, where a court was once more established. The palace there became the recognized home of the antipope, and a scene of great luxury and magnificence. It was this which gave France such a particular interest in the question, and so strong a desire to oppose the popes at Rome. Europe fell into two camps. Urban was supported by Italy, with the exception of Naples, by Germany and Bohemia, in return for his recognition of King Wenzel as emperor, by England, because he was hostile to France, and by Hungary, whose king had claims on Naples and hoped for help. France was backed up by Scotland, always ready to take the opposite side to England. And at first, they and Naples stood alone as supporters of Clement VII. Later, Castile, Aragon, and Navarre were won over for political reasons. The schism was a matter which concerned the whole of Europe, and therefore the whole of Europe had to be satisfied before any permanent conclusion could be arrived at. When one pope died, instead of leaving his rival in possession, 
the different powers concerned felt that they must uphold the justice of their cause by at once filling his place. The popes also appointed fresh cardinals, and those cardinals could not exist if the man to whom they owed their creation had no right to his office. If their position was genuine, the other cardinals had no existence, and whatever election they made was of no value. This was felt equally by the cardinals at Avignon and the cardinals at Rome. In the same way, a pope, once elected, was never ready to admit the worthlessness of his own election. If he were to resign, leaving the field vacant for his rival, and this rival were not really the divinely appointed pope, a deadly sin had been committed against the holy office. Thus political and ecclesiastical reasons combined to render the settlement of the question one of almost hopeless difficulty. The death of a pope at Rome or at Avignon was at once followed by a new election, and the longer the schism lasted, the more complicated did its solution become. Meanwhile, the character and ambition of the popes added to the troubles of Europe. Urban VI soon lost the friendship of Charles of Naples because he wanted to form a southern principality for his own very worthless nephew, Butilo. When King Charles was murdered in Hungary in 1386, Urban declared that his kingdom had lapsed to the Holy See and refused to recognize either Charles's son Ladislas or Louis of Anjou, the rival candidate crowned by Clement VII. Such struggles added to quarrels with his own cardinals occupied most of the time of the Italian Pope, who at last ended his stormy days at Rome, fighting against the magistracy of the city which he deemed too strong. The Italian cardinals now chose Boniface the Ninth, thirteen eighty nine to fourteen o four, a man of only thirty three, not a scholar nor a student, but of good private character and considerable ability. He hastened to pacify one enemy by recognizing Ladislas as king of Naples, 1390, and he conciliated the nobles in his own estates. His ruling passion was avarice. He had without doubt great need for money, but his ways of obtaining it were neither dignified nor honorable and rendered him very unpopular. He sold everything, places, privileges, permission to break all sorts of rules. He seized goods of dying bishops. He discussed financial matters even during the celebration of Mass. In his last illness, someone inquired of his health. If I had more money, I should be well enough, was the reply. These events were not calculated to raise the credit of the Church throughout Europe. In England, the government was endeavoring to check papal power by the statutes of provisors and primunire, whilst Wycliffe and his followers were led to question the whole theory of papal primacy and to preach that Christ alone should be head of the Church. Even in France, the schism was awakening much disgust, and the University of Paris was busy considering plans for ending so disgraceful a controversy. It was suggested that either both popes should abdicate, or that the question should be submitted to judges appointed equally by both sides, or to a general council of the Church. It is said to have been partly anger at these proposals which led to the fit of apoplexy in which Clement VII perished, 1394. Bishop Creighton writes of him, 
He was not great enough to submit for the good of Christendom, nor was he small enough to fight solely for himself. Overcome by the dilemma, he died. The cardinals at Avignon hastily put in his place a learned Spaniard, Peter de Luna, who took the name of Benedict the Thirteenth, thirteen ninety four to fourteen twenty three. They did go so far as to urge that whoever was elected should promise to abdicate at once if called on to do so. I would abdicate as easily as I take off my hat, said Peter, and he was chosen. Once Pope, however, Benedict was not so amenable. Negotiations for his abdication were begun at once. Commissions were sent to him from the University of Paris, embassies from royal courts. A meeting was held between the Emperor Wenzel and Charles VI of France, a drunkard and a madman, to consult as to plans. At last, France formally withdrew her allegiance from Benedict. All was in vain. The Pope said he would confer with Boniface, but nothing more. Tell the King of France that I will pay no heed to his ordinances, but will keep my name and papacy till death, he exclaimed on one occasion. Force was attempted when entreaties had failed, and Benedict was besieged in his palace, where despite his capitulation, he was kept practically a prisoner for five years. Meanwhile, the Roman Pope Boniface was no readier to resign than was his rival. Wenzel had promised to secure his abdication, but he had no power to fulfill his promise, and was soon involved in difficulties of his own with a rival emperor. The position of affairs was changed shortly after by the revival of Benedict's power. Disguised as a groom, he escaped from Avignon, and with the help of the Duke of Orléans, regained the obedience of France to his authority. He was able to assert his rights more firmly than ever, and to disquiet his opponent during the last year of his life. The death of Boniface was followed by the election of Innocent the Seventh, fourteen o four to fourteen o six, who spent the two years of his office in difficulties with Roman nobles and Ladislas of Naples. His successor, Gregory the Twelfth, fourteen o six to fourteen fifteen, was again appointed on condition of striving for unity, and he promised to resign whenever his rival should do so. The new Italian pope seemed in every way fitted to bring peace to the church, since no one could expect him to have any great ambition or love of office. Already eighty years of age, he was so thin and feeble that the chief fear was lest he should die before the schism was ended. He spoke of unity with the greatest eagerness, and protested that nothing should stand in his way. He would go on foot to meet his rival if horse could not carry him to the conference. After some discussion, Savona near Genoa was agreed upon as a meeting place. Here both popes were to come and resign their powers that a new head of the church might then be chosen. No sooner was this arrangement made than difficulties seemed to arise and Gregory's eagerness began to evaporate. There was no doubt that since Genoa was in the hands of the French king, Savona was a place which would favor Benedict, and Gregory's friends terrified him with suspicions of false play. Ladislas of Naples also, who had great influence over the old man, and had many reasons of his own for preferring the schism, besides dread lest a new pope chosen at Savona 
should favour the claims of Anjou, intrigued to prevent the conference and to hinder Gregory's departure from Rome. The two popes came as near to one another as Spezia and Lucca, but there they halted. Neither one nor the other would advance farther. In the words of the chronicler, one, like a land animal, refused to approach the shore, the other, like a water beast, refused to leave the sea. Meanwhile, the discovery that Benedict was secretly plotting to seize Rome during his rival's absence gave Gregory an excuse for repudiating his promise of resignation. The meeting at Savona was finally given up, and in vain did the cardinals summon both popes to appear before a congress at Pisa. This general council at Pisa, 1409, was very important as the first of a series of attempts to settle the affairs of Christendom by means of a representative body which claimed to be actually superior to the papacy itself. Solemn sentence was passed on the two competitors, who were declared guilty of breaking their oaths and being obstinate approvers of the long schism. Both were pronounced to be deposed, and an obscure friar, whose eloquence and learning had raised him to the Archbishopric of Milan, was chosen to be sole pontiff as Alexander V. Naturally, the chief result of this measure was to create three rival popes instead of two. Alexander only survived his election a year, never even resided in Rome, which had to be won for him from the hands of Ladislas, and died vainly, beseeching his cardinals to seek peace and ensue it. End of section 11